solo episode this month. Uh, unfortunately, I have yet to reach out to people about bringing them on the show. Um, that's honestly probably several months out, um, as we're still in the early stages and really just establishing a foundation for what daimonic work or soul work entails before we really dig into the rich material out there from various scholars, philosophers, spiritual practitioners, or fellow daimonic followers, if you will. <laughs> Hopefully, you have had a chance to uh, to listen to my recent um, teaser episode from, I believe, uh, it was right around Samhain, right around Halloween, that I posted it, and it was just a snapshot of my planned episode on the, the daimon's more demonic face, or the sort of shadow expression of the daimon, and I still intend to do an episode on that, as promised, but... She, myself, is pushing me away from that particular topic right now, and she, slash I, instead wanted me to pursue a different topic, the question of myth and personal myth. What myth are you living? So that is going to be the topic of this month's episode, not the one I (laughs) threw out there about a month ago as planned, but I am learning to let go of my incessant need to control everything um, and to plan everything down to a T. And she myself is, she gave me, I had a little hunch, a little message from her, an intuitive, instinctual gnosis that what I really needed to be talking about this month wasn't what I had originally intended to. So I am just going with it. So I, all of that (laughs) as a sort of convoluted and really rambly (laughs) apology to all of you who are expecting me to talk about something different this month. All right. So... Back to this question, the topic of the month, the personal myth. What is myth anyway? So these days, people tend to dismiss myth as, oh, it's the opposite or antithesis of fact. Something didn't really happen, it's a myth. It's an urban legend. It's a tall tale. It's not true. It's, I should not invoke our current but soon to be outgoing president, thank God, Des, (laughs) Trump, in saying, myth is akin to fake news. (laughs) You can't see me, but I put fake news in air quotes. (laughs) Anyway, not to get too political on you, uh, you can tell I am clearly not a fan of Trump, and I would imagine many of my listeners probably aren't either, but that is sort of besides the point here. Anyway, So back to what is myth and how can we reclaim myth instead of, you know, putting it in the dustbin of culture, since it is something that is not factual, not concrete, not pragmatic, not practical, not rooted in historical events. Myth is often, to my mind, a gateway or a portal into the collective unconscious, to invoke Jung's terminology or what a lot of New Age practitioners refer to as the Akashic Records. And I I don't know if there really is a parallel between the quote-unquote Akashic Records and Jung's collective unconscious, but my very minimal, limited understanding of it would incline me to believe that they are, if not one and the same, there is some connection. And mythology, or the language of myth, stories, 
with this really that are so rooted in the collective human psyche provide a gateway into this realm of our sort of collective imaginary. And this is what mythology really does for us. Mythology often comes in the form of various religious practices and religious traditions. All of those are steeped in mythology and have a very mythology of their own that they tend to present sometimes as fact, or certain fun- fundamentalists in any religious tradition can mistake the myth behind their religious tradition as concrete truth, and they tend to get led astray by that. So the thing about myth, about reclaiming myth, is embracing this somewhat elusive, intangible, decidedly non-factual. It's not true in the sense that it can be pinned down and proven empirically, like, yes, this happened. But it's true in the sense that it speaks to you on a deep and profound level. It's true, but it never really happened, because in some way, it's always happening. One of the spiritual teachers that I work with, shout out to Megan Watterson, author of Mary Magdalene Revealed and the Divine Feminine Oracle. She has this phenomenal group called Red Ladies, Um, And I will put that in my show notes if anyone is interested in joining. She talks about two different notions of time, chronos and kairos. Chronos being the sort of, uh, well, chronos being the Roman name of the Greek god Saturn who ate all his kids, I think, because he was, I I can't remember the exact myth. (laughs) Embarrassing since I'm talking about mythology. Anyway, he's sort of the embodiment or personification of linear time, the time that we capture on our clocks, the time that we use in order to determine when to wake up and how to get to work on time in the morning, that sort of thing. And that is in opposition to a very different notion of time known as kairos, which is a much more fluid and sort of timeless time. It's an eternal time. It's a temporality that cannot be pinned down by matter or reason. And Kairos is the type of temporal realm, I suppose, in which mythology unfolds. So it's true from a Kairotic standpoint. I don't actually know if that's a word, but not from the standpoint of Kronos or the time we use when we're like, oh shit, my alarm went off and I missed it and I'm running late to work. Oh boy. So that was a bit of a tangent. (laughs) It's been a very long month. I have not been sleeping well. Fortunately, there's quite a bit of stress and anxiety due to COVID-19, as I'm sure all of you are facing. So bear with me if this episode is a bit less organized and well thought out as I like it to be. But I switched gears as she myself wanted me to do. And I'm trying to sort of just go with the flow. So bear with me. And I do hope that all of you are staying sane and healthy and trying to find ways of coping with dealing with COVID in the midst of holiday season and trying to find ways to maintain contact with your friends, your close friends and family members, even if they're far away, which is the case with mine. We're doing a lot of Zoom sessions. Anyway, so (laughs) that really long tangent aside, back to myth. So... What is this notion of everyone living their own personal myth? This comes in through the wisdom, the joint wisdom of Carl Jung and Joseph Campbell. 
two heroes of mine who will resurface again in later episodes and who've come up earlier. Campbell is known in particular for his urge to everyone to follow their bliss. That was sort of his motto, follow your bliss. What does that mean? And what does that have to do with what Jung referred to as living your myth? So I am going to be referencing a few snippets of Joseph Campbell's book, Pathways to Bliss, Mythology and Personal Transformation, specifically chapter five, which is titled Personal Myth. And on the first page of that chapter, the subheading of the chapter is Jung, What Myth Do I Live By? And in this chapter, Campbell discusses Jung's depth psychology, how he came to it as a sort of spiritual crisis in his mid-30s, or no, excuse me, I think he was actually in his mid-50s when he had his spiritual crisis. I still need to do quite a bit more reading about Jung. (laughs) I'm more familiar with his ideas than I am with Jung as a person than I am with his biography, which is something I need to work on. So back to this chapter from Campbell's book. Pathways to Bliss, Chapter 5, Personal Myth. So he writes, and unfortunately I'm referencing a Google book snippet, so I don't have the page numbers. I don't have my physical copy on me, so and the page numbers are not listed in the Google book. But, okay, alas, here goes. I will quote Campbell here. He says, quote, Jung says in Memories, Dreams, Reflections, When it struck me what it means to live with a myth and what it means to live without one, it occurred to him to ask himself by what myth he himself was living, and he realized he did not know. So, in the most natural way, I, Jung, took it upon myself to get to know my myth, and this I regarded as my task of tasks." So I feel like a ventriloquist dummy on steroids, or a ventriloquist, um, and the dummies are... (laughs) are Campbell followed by Jung, because I was quoting Campbell, quoting Jung. But you get the idea. The essential message behind that is that Jung devoted the latter half of his life to trying to figure out what myth, what story, what profound sort of archetypal tale was he living in the human flesh. So his quest to discover the myth he was living was actually sparked, according to Campbell, by a surprising discovery he made when he was working with his patients in psychotherapy or psychoanalysis. So apparently, early on, Jung discovered striking parallels between patient dream and other psychic imagery with themes and imagery from world mythology and world religions. So... In other words, he realized that his patients, whether they were like schizophrenic, psychotic, or just, you know, well-adjusted, psychologically healthy, but still seeking psychological guidance, regardless of where they fell on that spectrum, they tended to be having these dreams or like visions that were drawing on imagery and themes from the collective unconscious from this realm that generates myth and religion. So from this, he became intrigued and was like, okay, if all my if all my patients are living myths, what myth am I myself living? How do you figure that out? So I unfortunately have not yet read Jung's Memories, Dreams, and Reflections, which is 
the particular text that Campbell is referencing here in this quote from his own book, Pathways to Bliss. But I will post it in the show notes. On Amazon, it's available 1989 edition. It's kind of a mixture of biography and autobiography. Um, contains writings from Jung himself, but unfortunately the manuscript wasn't finished until shortly before he died in 1961. So his colleague and friend Anita Jaffe uh, supposedly was the one who compiled all of the existing material and finished what was unfinished of this partial auto and other partial autobiography and and biography. So again, that'll be in the show notes, I promise. <laughs> so, and just one more quote, sorry, one more quote from Campbell's book, Pathways to Bliss, on this notion of personal myth from chapter five, personal myth. And again, I don't have the page number. I sincerely apologize. Bear with me. And quote, mythology begins where madness starts. A person who is truly gripped by a calling, by a dedication, by a belief, by a zeal, will sacrifice his security, will sacrifice even his life, will sacrifice personal relationships, will sacrifice prestige, and will think nothing of egoic personal development. He will give himself entirely to myth, end quote. Where have we heard this before? If not verbatim, this sounds very, very similar to what we encountered in episode one, and in The Soul's Code, James Hillman's book on the Daimon. So it seems that personal myth, sort of the guiding mythology of your life, particular lens of the other world or the collective unconsciousness that is speaking to and through you as a human may very well be the same as your Daimon, your calling. We will take a very, very brief pause and I will get back to you shortly with more on how to find your guiding myth. So how does one go about finding the myth that you're living? How do you go about finding the archetypal divine drama that resides within the collective unconscious, which is being expressed through and animated by you in the human flesh. Say that 20 times fast. <laughs> in other words, which sort of divine, numinous, otherworldly tale, legend, or myth are you here to embody and why? How do you figure that out? So this aligns very closely with Campbell's notion of following your bliss and I'm going to play a brief clip from a clip that's available on YouTube. It's posted by the Campbell Foundation, and it's titled Follow Your Bliss. It's part of episode four of a documentary series, I believe, that Campbell did with Bill Moyers entitled The Power of Myth. This is episode four, Sacrifice and Bliss. And this is where he talks about what it means to follow your bliss. He says at one point, Follow your bliss and don't be afraid, and doors will open where you didn't know they were going to be, end quote. And find, following your bliss, in order to do that, first you need to know what myth you are living. So I'm going to again play a brief snippet from this YouTube clip, 
and I will make sure to make it available. Uh, I will post this YouTube video in the show notes. It's about a five minute long video if you want to listen to the whole thing. We're going to listen to a much smaller fragment of it, starting at around two minutes and 17 seconds in and ending at around four minutes and eight seconds in. Beautiful way of teaching we had at Sarah Lawrence, where I taught for 38 years, uh, would ha I'd have an individual conference with every one of my students at least once a fortnight for half an hour or so. And there you're talking on about the things that students ought to be reading, and suddenly you hit on something that the student really responds to. You can see the eyes open, the complexion changes, the life possibility has opened there. And all you can say to uh, yourself is, I hope this child hangs on to that. You know, they may or may not. But when they do, they've found a life right there in the room with you. How would you advise somebody to tap that spring of eternal life, that joy that is right there? Well, we're having experiences all the time, which uh, uh, may, on occasion, render some sense of this, a little intuition of where your joy is. Grab it. No one can tell you what it's going to be. I mean, you've got to learn to recognize your own depths. Do you ever have this sense when you're following your bliss, as I have at moments, of being helped by hidden hands? All the time. It, it, it's miraculous. I even have a superstition that has grown on me as the result of invisible hands coming all the time. Namely, that if you do follow your bliss, you put yourself on a kind of track that has been there all the while waiting for you. And, uh, and the life that you ought to be living is the one you're living somehow. And uh, when you can see it, you, you begin to deal with people who are in the field of your bliss. And they open doors to you. I say, follow your bliss and don't be afraid. And doors will open where you didn't know they were going to be. Right. So the clip continues. I unfortunately have not watched this documentary series, but I hope to track it down. I'm sure some library has it. Maybe it's even available streaming through one of the library, uh, through a library's streaming services. That would be the dream. So <laughs> aside from the fact that I love how Campbell actually used the term Fortnite, oh, it's so quaint and archaic. I love it. Aside from that completely unrelated anecdote, I love when Bill jumps in and says, so did you ever feel like you're being helped by hidden hands? And Campbell goes in and he jumps off of that and says, yes, yes, yes. I feel that all the time. And when you follow those hidden hands that are guiding you, you find that you're put on a path, on a track that's been there for you always. It's always been there and you just need to follow it and things will almost as if by magic, come to fruition. Now, this isn't to sort of invoke new agey notions that like create your own, you create your own reality. So just will it and it will happen. Or like if you're, if you dream it, it will come. Sounds like to quote Field of Dreams that it's a 90s movie. If you build it, it will come. So <laughs> this isn't to promote passivity, but I do believe that there is a grain of truth to that somewhat watered down sort of new agey aphorism. Follow your bliss. If you find the myth you are living, if you let yourself be held and guided by those hidden hands of your daimon, then you will be put on the right path. And of course, you'll need to take action. And this may require you making certain sacrifices along the way. 
which came up in the Pathways to Bliss, the quote from Campbell's book, Pathways to Bliss, where he specifically stated this, you will need to sacrifice things in order to follow your bliss. It's, it's almost like a kind of madness to follow your bliss, but it's a divine madness. Dionysian ecstasy, if you will. You will need to let go of certain commonplace, mainstream societal norms. Relinquish those. Uh, maybe relinquish some of your comfort and security and what your ego needs to feel stable and secure and safe. But at the end of the day, that sacrifice will be worthwhile because you will have surrendered yourself to the divine within you, the divine that is guiding you to live your life as you've always intended to live it, perhaps even unbeknownst to you yourself or to your ego self. <laughs> so I was a bit long-winded, but I hope that clip was helpful. It certainly sparked my interest in that documentary series. I cannot wait to watch more. And I'm sure there will be more humorous moments where Campbell says things like Fortnite and I get to chuckle at Bill's 19, very 1980s glasses. <laughs> so how do you find your guidingness and why is it important? I would argue that it's important because it's empowering. It empowers you to deviate from the path that has been laid down for you by your family, by sort of ancestral imprints, by social norms, by your gender, your sexuality, your socioeconomic status, your nationality, all of those sort of, they can become constraints. They can sort of imprison your soul, your essence, your daimon. And in order to strip them away, you need to live your own myth. And that might mean sort of writing your own myth but drawing inspiration on existing mythological lore. But I do like this idea of sort of cooperating, collaborating, and ultimately co-creating with your daimon, your guiding inner voice or wisdom, to find and cultivate your own life story, your own myth. And you don't need to force yourself to conform to dominant mainstream myths, especially heteropatriarchal myths that run rampant in Judeo-Christian strains, for instance. It's empowering. You get to turn inward and find out what myth you yourself are living and you live accordingly in collaboration with your inner wisdom, your daimon, those helping hands that Campbell spoke of. So how do you actually find the myth? All of this is very, you know, well and great, but it's all in theory right now. How do you find the myth? There are many different ways you can do that. And it's quite likely you're living multiple myths, not necessarily just one exclusively. I don't think one myth has to have a monopoly on your life. But there may be one that sort of reigns supreme or surfaces more frequently than others do. And one way, well, several ways you can find them are to stimulate or invoke your intuition. And how can you do that? So here are a few suggestions that Campbell enumerates in uh, chapter five, personal myth of the aforementioned book, which we've been discussing, Pathways to Bliss. So he suggests that you, A, remember your child, childhood, well, <laughs> dreams, fantasies, and play. How, how did you play? What did you play? Did you have imaginary friends? Notice any possible themes emerging. These may be hints 
toward what your guiding myth is. B. Dreams. Fully immerse yourself in your dreamscape. Keep a start to keeping a dream journal, which I have recently begun to do. And I've been committing myself to documenting even the more mundane dreams, not just sort of like the big dreams or the really numinous otherworldly ones that I'm convinced are messages from my deep unconscious, from she, myself, my daimon, or perhaps messages from my late mother. Um, she does sometimes come to me in dreams. But by documenting this sort of parallel reality that you surrender to, your ego is surrendered to each night while you're sleeping, this is where the realm of myth and the daimonic has free reign. And if you pay attention, you might be able to track recurring themes and be like, wait a minute, it sounds like I might be living the myth of psyche, for instance. Um, and that's not a random example. That's the myth, the, pre, the pre predominant myth that I am living. <laughs> and I will get to that more in a few minutes. It was just the first example that came to mind because it's the one that's sort of like dominating my own current life. Um, so again, childhood fantasies, play, dreams, and see. Tap into your memories of various numinous, spiritual, or otherworldly experiences you have had in your waking life too, not just when you're asleep. And notice any recurring themes there. So... <laughs> Spoiler alert, you guys already know that my guiding myth is Psyche, or Psyche and Eros, which I will discuss at greater length shortly in the second half of this episode. Um, but for now, we're just going to walk through this exercise, sort of theoretically using me as an example. And again, I hate this being all about me, but for the first few episodes, unfortunately, I will be the sort of primary example because I have yet to incorporate voices of other people who are working with the daimonic and their personal myths, if you will. Again, that will come later. So if you, are, if you aren't completely sick of hearing my voice and still find this podcast interesting, stick with it. Hopefully within the next three or four episodes, I will be wrapping up this sort of foundational series and we'll be launching into interviews with people who are far more interesting and eloquent than I am. Wow. Uh, that was not very nice to myself. <laughs> she myself is like, you are very cruel to yourself sometimes. We're working on that. <laughs> I'm far from perfect. Anyway, using me as an example to walk through this sort of exercise. A, remember, I'm, I'm going to go ahead and remember some of my childhood dreams, fantasies, and how I played as a kid to try to ascertain any mythic resonances. So... When I was a kid, I, I mean, I grew up on a steady dose of Disney, and I'm a very, very femme lesbian, so <laughs> you will understand when I say that I played a lot with princesses. I was drawing princesses in the driveway and sidewalk chalk. I was writing plays and short stories about princesses, and not just, like, any princess, but a princess by the name of White Alice. Admittedly, not the most original name, but she was basically my childhood alter ego or imaginary friend, if you will. A queen, a princess, sovereign queen of her own realm. And if my little sister Janelle is listening to this, I apologize for all the years that I tortured you making me be my royal chauffeur. <laughs> I was the terrible big sister, especially when I was impersonating White Alice. So... 
I'm not sure really how this connects to Psyche and Eros, aside from the fact that Psyche was a human princess. Bit of a superficial connection, but bear with me. More hints will surface in other aspects of my life. B. Dreams. So I've started keeping a dream journal, and I have had a lot of numinous dreams, but weirdly enough, none of them have really connected to this particular myth. However, I remain convinced that this is the myth I am living. And this might be a bit of a stretch, but about a year after my mom died, I was visiting one of my great friends, one of my best friends from college, Chris, during the summer. And we were driving around and just shooting the shit in the car. And he, I don't know what prompted this really, but he started to tell me about this really bizarre and kind of surreal but really profound dream that he had the night before. And here goes. Basically, he dreamt that he was in this like otherworldly realm, some sort of divine heavenly realm, and he was crossing a golden bridge over, I don't remember, a lake or something, and suddenly this cloaked figure appears who kind of resembles Darth Vader. My friend Chris is like a big fan of Star Wars, so it's not completely unrelated, not completely arbitrary. Anyway, so the Darth Vader-esque figure approached Chris in his dream and then said, Chris, do you know who I am? And Chris, of course, was like, Luke, I am your father. No, just kidding. Um, he goes, yeah, 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 you're Courtney's mom. <laughs> like, I was listening to him tell me this story and I'm like, so my mom showed up to you in your dream as Darth Vader and you were like, oh, totally, that's Kathy Kleptis. <laughs> so it's nonsensical. It's very surreal and bizarre, as dreams tend to be. Anyway, the dream continued. Supposedly, after Chris was able to identify my mom as the Darth Vader figure, she reached over and snapped off a portion of the bridge, the golden bridge, and it transformed into a gold comb. And she handed it to him ceremoniously. And he was probably looking at the comb going, what the F is this? And she goes, just give it to Courtney. She'll know what it means. And that was the end of Chris's dream story. At least this is all secondhand. I didn't dream this myself, but it struck him enough to tell me about it. And we were, we were half kidding about it, but I was also like, what the heck, what the heck does a gold comb mean? <laughs> and about five years later, I stumble upon a young woman named Janelle. She shares um, the first name of my little sister. That's a pretty unusual name. That could be a synchronicity. This is her master's thesis for a degree in um, English literature, um, presumably in creative writing, at the University of South Dakota. And yes, I do sometimes read theses and dissertations. Don't judge me. Anyway, this one... <laughs> was her novel, her feminist retelling of the Eros and Psyche myths that I stumbled upon and became completely enraptured by. So shout out to you, Janelle Thornton. <laughs> if by some weird twist of fate you're listening to this podcast, I am a fan of your work and you should publish. So anyway, in chapter 61 of her novel thesis, there's a reference not explicitly to a gold comb, but pretty damn close. So in this chapter, towards the end of the tale, which I will recount in greater detail shortly, 
psyche's apotheosis is happening, her transformation, her metamorphosis from human into goddess. And in this moment, this is the language that Janelle used to describe this transformation. Quote, the gold passed through her hair like a comb, undid the tangled mass she had and loosed it down to her shoulders, highlighting each dark curl and spiraling around by itself. The radiance took on a life of its own, swirled around her like wind, a glittering, subtle tornado. Uh, end quote. And this continues. This is from page 302 of her rather substantial thesis novel. So again, the gold passed through her hair like a comb. So it's not a golden comb, but pretty close. And this is the closest to a golden comb reference that I have yet to encounter. That I immediately thought of Chris's dream <laughs> when I was reading this. And I was like, I started cracking up. I was like, after all these years of periodically getting like trapped down that wormhole, trying to figure out what the heck that golden comb symbol meant that my mom... Darth Vader Kathy claimed that I would understand the significance of, suddenly it appears in some random master's thesis I'm reading that offers a feminist fictional retelling of the Psyche and Aerosmith. I mean, what? Really bizarre twist of fate, but I don't think it's meaningless. And again, you can't take it too literally, obviously. You can't take Chris's dream literally, and the connection may be a bit superficial, between the gold comb from his dream and this golden comb moment uh, in Psyche's transformation in this fictional recounting of her legend. But I still feel instinctually that there's something to it, and it's pointing me towards Psyche. And finally, C, numinous otherworldly spiritual encounters or experiences in your waking life. And I didn't really have many of these until after my mom died in 2012, as you know, if you've listened to the first few episodes. And ever since then, I have tended to be bombarded with them. Maybe bombarded is not the right word. It sounds really negative. But a recurring theme or symbol from these encounters has been butterflies and dragonflies. Symbols of transformation and metamorphosis run rampant in my spiritual encounters. And part of this might be because my mom was an avid gardener, and I tend to associate her with dragonflies and butterflies, and have since before she died and after. So this might just be my mom communicating with me, or it may be that, and it's some sort of push, well, uh, prod from my daimon, from she myself, pointing me in the direction of the Psyche and Aerosmith, um, since Psyche is often portrayed as a butterfly. Butterflies do symbolize transformation and metamorphosis, as they have become a cocoon. So all of this might seem like circumstantial evidence, um, purely anecdotal, <laughs> as a skeptic would say, and my own inner skeptic says. But I have had semi-verbal, if you will, um, confirmation from she myself that I am on the right track. So in one of my meditative visions of her, there are visual elements of these experiences, um, as I talked about in some of my earlier episodes. I mean, she does appear as a hummingbird goddess, so that's a very visual phenomenon. But she often communicates to me in words, in language, as I'm a very verbal person. It's hard for me, even when I'm meditating, to fully quiet my mind. So I think she's just kind of learned to work with it and communicates with me 
that way. So during one of these partially verbal linguistic visions or meditative encounters with she, myself, my daimon, la ninfa colibri, the hummingbird goddess, I asked her how she wanted me to relate to her. And suddenly there was this image of a butterfly and a young woman who was a butterfly. And I just had this knowing that was like, that's you. You are that lady. I mean, not that at the expense of being myself, Courtney Cleftis, I'm her too. She's me. I am me. But I am also this butterfly lady. And she myself conveyed to me in that moment that I was this woman's psyche and she was the Eros or the Cupid to my psyche. So I remember sort of waking back to fully waking consciousness. Living the myth of psyche and arrows, and I was like, "Well, I mean, all these butterflies, the gold comb, and the that that novel thesis that I read, and completely enamored with." And putting the pieces together, putting the puzzle pieces together, it did make sense on an intuitive level. But from a rational standpoint, my inner skeptic was still like, mm, "Okay, well, if she myself said so, I'll go with it. Trust her. Take I'll take her word for it." And so ever since then, I've been working with the, the notion that I am psyche, not literally, of course, but that I am sort of a human embodiment of her or of that myth. And what is that myth about? That is what comes up in the final and concluding part of this episode. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> Right. So that was a teeny snippet of the French romantic composer, Emile Paladils, uh, if I'm pronouncing his name right, Suchet, uh, or Psyche, from 1911. Uh, it's a song for voice and piano based on a poem of Pierre Corneille, or Corneille. My French is awful. I'm embarrassing myself. <laughs> All those French diction classes in college. Granted, it's been at least a decade in my defense. This is a recording um, posted on YouTube, and I will make it, I will include it, as promised, alongside all the other references in the show notes. And this recording is from 2008, and it features Malcolm Martineau on piano and Susan Graham, a fabulous American mezzo-soprano, as the singer. So that little bit that you just heard was from about the middle of the art song, this French art song. And the text was essentially talking, and I'm slightly paraphrasing, was basically like, oh, the sun caresses your cheek and the wind is blowing through your hair. Oh, I'm so jealous of the, the element's devotion to your beauty, your stunning beauty. So as you can see, Psyche is a very, very gorgeous woman. I cannot say the same for myself, although my wife would claim otherwise. I'm not ugly, but I'm a pretty just average looking individual. <laughs> I'm certainly not a supermodel and certainly not a psyche type from a physical or aesthetic standpoint. 
but so who is psyche and why why does she have why is she latched on to our collective well psyche <laughs> for lack of a better term for so many so many years for so many millennia even so the myth you can, I think, I believe it's in Ovid's Metamorphoses, but the original form of it appears in The Golden Ass by Apuleius. Um, and I don't have a date for that, unfortunately. According to Wikipedia, again, the most authoritative source ever, but a great starting point. It was written in the 2nd century CE or AD by Lucius, Lucius, Lucius Apuleius. So this was like a interlude, if you will, in his lengthy novel, the first-person narrative featuring him as protagonist. And the basis of The Golden Ass is that the protagonist, Apuleius himself, was transformed into a donkey or an ass by magic gone wrong, and eventually is like restored to his humanity by devoting himself to the goddess Isis, uh, the sort of like pan-Hellenic Greco-Egyptian goddess Isis, who I would say her worship rivaled that of Christ for a long, long time and was extensive, like all throughout the Roman Empire. I believe there were even churches in modern day England that were built on former, the, the ruins or remains of former sacred temples to Isis. Anyway, so for whatever reason, as an interlude in the midst of this kind of ridiculous tale, is the brief novella about Psyche and Eros. And who exactly was Psyche? According to Theoi.com, which is a great resource for anyone interested in learning more about the gods and goddesses of ancient Greek mythology, from the Olympian gods to non-Olympian gods, you know, and the Olympians being like the sort of primary pantheon, like Zeus, etc. Zeus, rapist extraordinaire, not my favorite. So on the page about Psyche, there's a chart that says, uh, that offers a brief summary. Her husband is Eros or Cupid. Well, she's one lucky girl if you're into men. I'm not, but um, we're going to go with the more androgynous face of Cupid or a dykey Cupid. <laughs> she's the goddess of the soul, home, Mount Olympus. Um, so she's sort of adopted by the Olympian pantheon through her marriage to Eros, sidekick and son of Aphrodite, goddess of beauty, and her symbols, butterfly. So she's essentially the goddess of the soul and the wife of Eros. She was originally a mortal princess, and apparently the deal was she was so stunningly gorgeous that the villagers that her parents ruled over, king and queen of, I don't know, random podunk town in ancient Greece. Kidding. <laughs> I need to revisit the myth to figure out the, the original telling of the myth to remember which specific village her parents ruled over as king and queen. Princess of somewhere. Anyway, the villagers are completely enraptured by her beauty and start worshipping her instead of Aphrodite, which, as it turns out, is a big no-no. Aphrodite is super pissed, she's jealous, and she will hold a grudge. The problem, victim-blaming much, she turns on Psyche instead of the villagers. So Psyche is the one who's punished for this transgression. Not the wayward, blasphemous villagers, but Psyche. <sighs> Unfortunately, the victim-blaming theme is not limited to <laughs> the literature of antiquity. It prevails today, but we won't go there. Anyway, so 
let's just put it this way. This myth is not very feminist as it's traditionally appeared. Victim blaming exhibit A. So basically what happens, Aphrodite looks at her son Eros, and I think this was before he appeared in cartoons, like a chubby little baby with an arrow. He's more like a sexy androgynous man-god, an Adonis, if you will, an Adonis type, who just happens to have a magical arrow. And Aphrodite's like, son, I'm pretty pissed at this chick named Psyche. I'm paraphrasing, obviously. <laughs> Please strike her with one of your arrows so she will fall in love with the worst person ever, like the most monstrous of creatures on the planet. And Eros is like, sure, okay, mom. But, whoops, accidentally he scratches himself with his own arrow, and he becomes completely enraptured with Psyche. So, as you can see, you can probably get a sense of where this, where this tale is going, <laughs> moving forward. Anyway, moving away from Olympus and the realm of the gods to the mortal realm, Psyche's parents, king and queen of random town in ancient Greece that I cannot recall the name of. I will put it in the show notes if I think of it. Anyway, they're all distressed because they cannot find a husband for their stunning daughter. And they don't understand why. They're like, if we can find husbands for our other two daughters who aren't nearly as gorgeous as Psyche... We have a problem. So the mom looks at the dad and goes, what the hell are we going to do? The dad goes, I know. We will seek the assistance, the guidance, the divine guidance of the god Apollo as channeled through the oracle of Delphi or Delphos. So they hitch a wagon or a chariot. I don't know what they rode in ancient, in ancient Greece. <laughs> I'm betraying my ignorance. I hope this rendition, I'm trying to be humorous here as I retell this tale from a more modern standpoint. <laughs> anyway, so they hitch their ancient Greek chariot wagon thing, and they make their way up the mountain at Delphos, whereupon they encounter the Pythia, the famous oracle of Delphos, who informs them that Psyche is just too damn beautiful, and she's destined, no, doomed, to marry a monster. So her parents are like, oh, well, shit, that's terrible. That's going to be so bad for our reputation. But if the gods said so, we got to do what the gods said. And Psyche, of course, um, resigns herself to this horrible fate and kind of signs on for this awful kind of farce of a marriage ceremony with her family, where they rather unceremoniously dump her at the top of a mountain have a sort of funereal wedding celebration with the groom in absentia and just leave her there. So victim blaming, abandonment, go well so far for Psyche. I'm just so glad that I am somehow connected with or living this myth and I'm linked to this mythical figure. As a queer feminist librarian, yeah, Psyche, that is the dream. Bear with me. In the original myth, I can't say it actually gets better, but there are ways of reclaiming it, and that is what I love to do. So moving forward, Psyche ends up being carried off by Zephyrus, the god of the west wind, to Eros's castle in the clouds. Um, to go all luminous, there is a castle on a cloud. I, Psyche, like to go there in my sleep. <laughs> anyway, so long story short, 
she ends up in this cast in this magical castle in the, in the ether and she has invisible servants attending to her every need and an invisible husband who has sex with her every night must be good sex because she's apparently like enamored with him but she cannot ask him who he is or ask to see his face so that's problematic if you're ever in a relationship like that ladies i would get out of it asap don't pull a psyche don't emulate her at least in this aspect of the myth so at some point she gets lonely and eros agrees to let her two sisters visit her and they are envious falling on the aphrodite jealousy train and they're like oh i i want to be married to a gorgeous man who a gorgeous wealthy man who lavishes me with gifts and gold and jewelry and servants and all i could ever want instead of being married to this guy who's like 50 years my senior and ruts away at me every night so in their defense that's somewhat justifiable jealousy but they convince her psyche that there's something a little off about this relationship which in their defense they're right there is so they convince her to get a knife and um, attack Eros while he sleeps and I would say that's a pretty good message I mean ulterior motives aside they are promoting self-defense um, I'm down with that <laughs> so moving on Psyche follows their lead, and she takes a double-edged dagger to bed with her, not suspicious at all, and uh, a lantern. And after Eros has fallen asleep, um, post-coital, I'm sure, she sneaks around the bed, lights her lantern to look at him, and she holds the dagger aloft, ready to attack him, ready to strike the murderous deathly blow. And suddenly she realizes, she sees him for the first time. He's like, oh my God. But literally, oh my God, I am sleeping with and I'm married to Eros. So in her moment of shock and being awestricken, she accidentally, well, I mean, she planned to stab him, but she kind of like scrapes him a little bit with the knife or the dagger. He wakes up and he's like, oh, how dare you? You've betrayed me with your insatiable curiosity. Why couldn't you have just gone on living happily ever after, not having the faintest idea who I was? So he abandons her. Poor Psyche's left alone, and she ends up, long story short, she ends up crossing across the globe, seeking assistance to get back with Cupid. Because, I mean, who wouldn't want to be with him? <laughs> Note my sarcasm. So she ends up on this very, very lengthy series of trials essentially impossible trials established by the still angry and jealous Aphrodite. And if she accomplishes, if she manages to succeed in these trials, then she can get back together with Eros. But everyone knows, except for apparently Psyche, that is basically doomed to failure. So ultimately, she ends up on an underworld journey. She manages to get across the river Styx, and she's there to retrieve a beauty potion or something from the goddess of the underworld, Persephone, and bring it to Aphrodite. I don't know why Aphrodite needs a beauty potion since she's supposedly already gorgeous, but maybe it's because she needs to make herself more gorgeous than the mortal, her sort of mortal counterpart, Psyche. So Psyche, of course, being curious, opens the box. If you are, in, if you encounter a box in ancient Greek mythology, I would suggest you don't open it. It's 
somewhat like Pandora's box, <laughs> it le- it wreaks havoc, not on the entire mortal realm, but on poor Psyche herself. And it turns out to be like a sleep potion and it induces a sort of like mystical, magical coma. And of course, Eros, who's been watching all this from afar, not helping her because he's kind of a douchebag, or he's been like imprisoned by his mom. I don't know. And finally, he's like, all right, well, it's my time to save my damsel in distress. So he rescues her, wakes her up, convinces Zeus to let her marry him, and they get married, have kids, and all is well. They actually only have one kid. The <laughs> fruit of their loins, <laughs> so to speak, is Hedone, or Voluptus, the goddess of pleasure. Or dare I say, to invoke Joseph Campbell, of bliss, of living your bliss. So if you think about it somewhat allegorically and strip away the really problematic, really, really, really sexist elements of this myth, at least as told by Donkey Man Apuleius, (laughs) perhaps from an allegorical standpoint, you could interpret this myth as the tale of the human ego achieving an inner sort of sacred marriage or union with the divine that resides within. And achieving that inner sacred marriage, you manage to give birth to your bliss, uh, metaphorically speaking, of course. Uh, Although not in Psyche's case, apparently. So... As you can tell by my rather sarcastic and humorous retelling of this myth, hopefully you enjoyed it, and I will, there are some other really uh, hilarious recountings of this myth available on YouTube that I've listened to before, and I will post those dun, 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 in the show notes. <laughs> so, once again, to reinforce my interpretation of that legend, or that myth, it's not too far off the mark, according, again, to Wikipedia, um, and I will try to find more authoritative sources to back this up. As a scholar and a librarian, I really ought to, but at this point, for the purposes of this particular episode, I'm going to start with the basics, and Wikipedia serves that purpose pretty well. Well, according to the Wikipedia entry about Cupid and Psyche, quote, Apuleius drew generally on imagery such as the laborious ascent of the winged soul and the union with the divine achieved by souls through the agency of the daimon love, quote, uh, end quote, and the daimon love being Cupid or Eros. And the winged soul is the butterfly goddess, human goddess Psyche herself. So my interpretation of this through the lens of my various Psychean visions and images and dream experiences, etc., as well as the confirmation from she myself in her own words that she is the Eros to my Psyche would lead me to believe that I am perhaps trying too hard to understand who she myself is. And while to a certain extent that's what this podcast is about, um, perhaps I'm shooting myself in my own foot like Eros does with his own arrow. Whoops. No. (laughs) All jokes aside, though, I do think there's something to this notion that I am living in this life an attempted pursuit of fully embodying, internally, inwardly marrying myself, my god self, she myself, la nymphe colibri, who fortunately is not a douchebag like Eros, as told in this lovely donkey man. I'm just going to keep calling Apuleius donkey man. 
if someone's a scholar and is offended by that or a deep, a profound fan of Apuleius's work, I am deeply sorry. I'm not sorry. <laughs> Feeling very snarky today. So, how did I stumble upon this modern retelling of Eros and Psyche? By researching Eros and Psyche, of course. Because I was not satisfied with Apuleius's, aka Donkey Man's version of the tale. I was like, wow, I do not want to be associated with this kind of pathetic, naive ignoramus who is seduced by the douchebag par extraordinaire. As a queer woman, yeah, no. As a queer woman and a feminist, I was not down for that. But I figured, you know, maybe there's another version or another interpretation of this myth that portrays Psyche with maybe Cupid too in a slightly uh, more flattering <laughs> light. And I don't mean physically flattering. Not a, It's not all about beauty. Don't judge a book by its cover. Anyway, so as a true scholar, I found interesting books like Psyche's Knife by, she teaches at Pacifica um, Graduate Institute. Here it is, Elizabeth Nelson. Her dissertation, published in 2011, available on ProQuest, which is how I accessed it. Her dissertation, Psyche's Knife, which has since been published as a book. And I'll post the link to the book version of it, um, which you can buy on Amazon or elsewhere. Anyway, she devotes this book to exploring some of the symbology behind and embedded within this myth in an effort to rehabilitate Psyche in more positive and feminist terms, if you will. So here's a quote from page 158 of her dissertation. I'm not sure what the pagination is in the book version, the published version, but here she says, quote, she is not only poor, simple Psyche, a tender-hearted and naive young girl. Psyche is also an intuitive woman who heeds the creative urge towards wholeness and a bold woman who faces her lover with a lamp and knife to discover the truth, however monstrous it may be, end quote. So this book is based on the premise of that Psyche has been sanitized by the patriarchy. Sounds like most fairy tale uh, heroines and reduced to a naive little girl, which she is not ultimately at her core. She sets out to reclaim the darker, more chthonic side or face of Psyche, if you will, and she invokes the archetypal, quote, archetypal perspective of the goddess in her role as death wielder holding her double axe, end quote. That's from page 167. This double axe being uh, symbolized by the labrys, which you've probably seen. It also kind of looks like a butterfly, you could argue, but it may also be more violent than that. And it may be the double axe of the goddess of death and life. And the labrys, you look it up, it's associated, it's connected with the labyrinth and with Minoan Crete and the Ariadne legend, another mythological figure I am very fascinated by, who I feel has some connection to Psyche. I still haven't figured out what the connection is besides the double axe, labrys, and or Psyche's double-edged dagger, but there's, there's something there. In sum, Psyche is a goddess of transformation, which involves death in life. There's a destructive quality of her. She's both creative and destructive. She's not the overly saccharine, sanitized version, kind of naive little girl that you get in Donkey Man's version of the tale. 
Hashtag DocuMan. <laughs> anyway, so that's another source on Psyche that I would recommend, as well as, again, Janelle Thornton's Aerosmith and Psyche. Unfortunately, that is not published. I will try to find contact info for her, but this is her 2013 master's thesis submitted to the Department of English in the Graduate School in the University of South Dakota. Pretty random, but I stumbled upon it, and it was a revelatory read. Redeems Psyche in many respects. She even has a, a cameo, cameo, that's not the word, um, during this, the middle section of this modern feminist retelling of the tale. She lives with a bunch of Amazon warriors, and she's actually the last of the Amazons, but I won't give you any more spoilers. If you can get your hands on it, you should read it yourself. I think that's probably all for this month. Again, my apologies to all of you who were eagerly awaiting, assuming you were eagerly awaiting, the promised episode on the more demonic face of the Daimon. That will probably be coming in December, unless she myself has other ideas, <laughs> like she did this time around. But in the meantime, have fun finding your own myth. Again, to reiterate, do some dream work, dream journaling, maybe sit down and try to dig into some of your childhood memories about playtime, imaginary friends, see if there are any themes or hints emerging there. And uh, aside from your dreams, think about any numinous or otherworldly spiritual encounters you have had in your waking life and look for recurring themes there as well. And from that triumvirate, you might find you're onto something. And if you can't find any recurring themes or they seem circumstantial or superficially connected like they did in my case, you can also just turn inward and ask yourself, your god self, your daimon, to tell you or give you a hint, and they very well may. Happy Thanksgiving to all of you. I don't know if I will have post. I'm recording this pre-Thanksgiving, but I don't know if I'll have a chance to post it until after. So, happy Thanksgiving or happy belated Thanksgiving to those of you who celebrate. Be safe, stay sane, and I will see you next time. Thanks. Thank <laughs> you.